0: Uh, well, this now is um, our final sermon in this series on the second half of the first book of Samuel, which corresponds to the first half of the life of David, the second half being found in Second Samuel, if you're with me. Anyway, <clears throat> I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, this is where we'll leave the story, to resume the Lord willing uh, next winter. Well, our text opens with a shocking revelation. Whilst David and his men have been away on their wasted trip trying to serve the Philistines as mercenaries, the Amalekites, whom Saul failed to exterminate, have come through and have taken everything, all property, all people, burning their village, Ziklag, to the ground. Now the, um, the Amalekites were historic enemies of the Israelites and at this point in time there'd been intense animosity between the two people groups for about 430 years. Uh, last week, I, I did say that I would say more this week about the relationship between the Amalekites and the Israelites. But actually, when I came to prepare for this sermon, I realized that that wasn't strictly necessary. It wasn't strictly relevant to today's text. So I'll leave it here, leave it there for today. All we really need to know for this text is the hatred between the two peoples. Um, <clears throat> the Amalekites and the Israelites, they'd been intense enemies for about 430 years. And even though the uh, Amalekites are therefore in some sense our enemies, as we read through the Bible and as we ourselves identify too as God's people, even though they're our enemies, we might be thinking, serve you right, David. And to some degree, if we are thinking, serve you right, David, we'd be correct in that reaction. Because two weeks ago we saw for ourselves that David and his 600 men had made a living themselves for over a year by precisely that same form of activity, strip raiding. And it was common, it was a common way for these desert people to make a living. Swoop down at dawn, take everything by overwhelming force and then make a swift getaway. And I understand that the, the better one um, of the Arabic Peninsula. The Bedouin tribes uh, continued uh, in that practice until very recently, strip raiding. And, and furthermore, um, David didn't just take the people as slaves. No, David, he killed them all. He killed everybody. So they wouldn't dob him in to his Philistine overlord, Akish, king of Gath. So David the ruthless strip raider, gets strip raided. And this by the Amalekites. The very people most clearly identified in the early books of the Bible as the arch enemies of God's people. Well, obviously, David opened himself up to this in his folly, and the enemy, they jumped on him. Well, in this world, there is a principle at work. And everyone can see it, sooner or later, irrespective of your religious position or persuasion, sooner or later, we all tumble to the fact that as you sow, so shall you reap. Life has a rough justice all of its own. Now, actually, for us as God's people, we know that God has stamped this with his own guarantee. Paul writes for us, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a person reaps what they have sown. As you sow, so shall you reap. And David, well, he, he wasn't where he should have been through all of this. David was where he shouldn't have been doing what he shouldn't have been doing. As we saw two weeks ago, David's overblown sense of loyalty gets the better of him and he promises to fight against Israel on the Philistine, Philistinian side. And it was, as we saw two weeks ago, it was only by God's grace and mercy that that God uh, uh, saves David from this self-defeating blunder. It's only by God's grace that that, that God saves David from David. So what we recognize in the first five verses, yeah, this is God's providence. David, you have reaped as you have sown. The Lord is disciplining him, correcting him by allowing him to experience for himself the error of his own wisdom. And if you thought that as you read the opening verses, as you thought, well... David deserved this, then, then maybe for us, stoning David may have made us feel better as well. And the idea of stoning David made David's 600 men, 600 distraught men feel better too. I mean, this is before mobile phones. They had to discover for themselves that their wives and their children were gone. Everything burnt to the ground. All their possessions and their wives and their children gone taken captive into a life of slavery slaves to the amalekites and the 600 men they're angry they're angry enough to stone david i mean after all with 2020 hindsight in retrospect it's just totally obvious that david should have allocated some men to remain behind and protect the village i mean nobody thought of this obviously but david should have thought of this and he should have done it Now, I guess one of the things that I've learned over the years in watching people in hard times is that um, suffering and hardship is spiritually neutral. Suffering and hardship can bring out the worst in people and suffering and hardship can bring out the best in people. Sometimes in the face of suffering and hardship, Some people turn away from God. They've had enough. And sometimes in the face of suffering and hardship, some people turn to God and their faith deepens. But suffering and hardship in and of itself is spiritually neutral. It doesn't cause people to do one or the other. And in this story, we see that 600 men in the face of suffering and hardship, they want to crucify David as a scapegoat and kill him. But David, he turns to God. And in turning to God, that turns the story. And the turnaround happens in verse 6. David strengthens himself in Yahweh the Lord his God. Now the last time we heard language like that was back in chapter 23 when Jonathan visited David on the run. And we read in verse 16 that Jonathan helped David find strength in God. What does it mean to find strength in God? Well, I guess it means a lot of different things. But we know for sure that it includes prayer because David prayed. He inquired of the Lord and the Lord told him what to do. But even before he prayed, I think that David probably spent a few moments thinking this through. Because we know he was extremely distressed. His two wives were gone. Everything he owned was gone. And actually in his heart, he knew this is my fault at a number of different levels wasn't where I should have been, wasn't doing what I ought to have been doing, didn't think about leaving men behind. It's all David's fault, and he knows it. But somehow, we know that David must have thought something along the lines of, well, this situation looks completely hopeless, but I know, I know in my head, God can do anything. And all this looks and feels like it's my fault, but actually, I know that God is forgiving. Now, if God is both forgiving and all-powerful, there's a chance that something can be done. There's a chance that God can redeem this dog's dinner of a situation. This dog's dinner of a disaster. Perhaps God can redeem it, bring something good out of it. And um, if we look at David, we we might think, oh, David, (laughs) he's the eternal optimist. But actually we know from his prayers, we know from the Psalms, that we know that David certainly wasn't He wasn't an eternal optimist. And we shouldn't misunderstand him. David is not extremely eternally optimistic with respect to life. He knows that bad things can happen. But he does know God. And he knows that with God, anything is possible, even a second chance. Um, To quote Eugene Peterson... Quote, as David's exterior world collapsed, he returned to the interior, rebuilt his primary identity, recovered his base, Unquote. In other words, as, as David's world collapsed around his ears, David prayed, and in praying, he not only remembered who God was, he remembered who he was, and so there is indeed an astonishing turnaround. Not only do they end up with all their people back, unharmed, which is in of itself an astonishing miracle, and they, they end up with all their belongings back. Minus some food and drink, I guess. But what they ended up with was actually not just their own belongings back, but with all the accumulated belongings of the entire Amalekite strip raiding tour that had taken in the the entire Negev, the entire south, both Philistinian and Judean territory, before they got to Ziklag. This is the beauty of the text. They're vastly richer at the end than they were at the beginning. They're better off. Well, it's an extraordinary story. I think um, three details are worth noting. So we'll just have a quick look at three, three, three details. Um, the treatment of the Egyptian servant, I think that's worth looking at. Secondly, the treatment of the 200 tired men who stayed behind at Besor Creek, that's worth looking at. And lastly, we'll look at the distribution of the gifts to the cities and elders of Judah. Three things that mark for us David's Fitness as a leader. Firstly, the treatment of the Egyptian servant. I think that's poignant. To his Amalekite master, this guy was a slave. He was a thing, a tool. Okay, so it malfunctioned in the desert. Just get another one. There's always more slaves. Um, That's how many people thought. You know, great civilizations in the past did great things. The Indians built the Taj Mahal. The Egyptians built the pyramids. But neither invented the wheelbarrow. You don't need a wheelbarrow if you've got slaves. There's always more of them. To to his Amalekite master, it's just a thing. But to David and his men, he was a person. And They saw a man in distress and you know what? They cared for him. They fed him and gave him his first food and water in three days. And that was even before they knew he was an Egyptian and even before they knew that he could be of some use to them. David, David is the good Samaritan. And Jesus' word to us is, go and do likewise. And there is irony in the, in the Egyptian slave's usefulness, isn't there? I mean, David is reaping from what he sowed. David was generous with his figs and raisins and his water out there in the wilderness. And he, and he, 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 he sowed and he reaped. Because through this Egyptian, he'll, he'll reap a heck of a lot more figs and raisins. He's going to show him the way. So it's about sowing and reaping. David sowed and he reaped a reward. A reward. The treatment of the uh, of the 200 tired men is, is similar. Uh, we understand the reasoning, don't we? We understand the reasoning of the evil men and the troublemakers who feel that the 200 tired men, they don't deserve a share of the spoils of war. After all, it's us guys who went into battle. It's us guys who fought tooth and nail with sword and stone and sling and arrow for 24 hours to get this stuff. That they just sat around a brook for a day and a bit. But David, he shows his leadership genius in instantly seeing the danger of that thought pattern and where that was going to take them. For David, you see, this is all different. For David, all this stuff they have is ultimately down to the grace and generosity of God. This is God's providence, God's protection, God's guidance. God's kindness, God's forgiveness, God's grace. And if that's true, it would be delusional. And if it's delusional, it would be extremely dangerous to start acting as though all of this had been achieved through our own strength and battlefield valour. No, it's not by the strength of our arms that we've done this. This is the grace of God. And so by way of honouring God... David's going to be generous to all, including the 200 tired men who couldn't go another step further. And, and so a rule, a new rule is introduced to Israel. Love your neighbor. We, we all share alike in the spoils. That rule, rather than hierarchy based upon best performance, now becomes established in Israel. Changes the culture of the entire nation. And it's actually only after David announces his decision that we understand that these 200 exhausted men did indeed actually deserve a share because they had fulfilled a function. They remained behind to guard the unrequired camping gear, allowing the stronger men to move faster, unburdened either by their stuff or by worries about their stuff because it was being looked after. David's decision allows for this differentiation to persist in Israel. Some go into action, some stay and serve in other ways behind the scenes. You know what? We all share in the prize money and the glory is given to God. David is clearly a genius of his time. No one else thought like this. And his genius is simply recognizing God's grace for what it is in any given situation. Well there is a um, there is a silent comparison in the text a comparison between uh, David and Saul because you know about a dozen years earlier first first Cha- Samuel chapter 15 Saul and his army had returned home likewise loaded down with plunder after a raid against the Amalekites and you know what they had a job to do their job was the total destruction of everything But you know what? The soldiers had a better idea. Their idea was, hey, let's honor the Lord with a barbecue in his name. And Saul went along. But when the prophet Samuel confronted him, he confessed and said, I was afraid of the men and I gave in to them. In today's text, David's men also want to dictate terms on what to do with the plunder. And David would have had every right to have been afraid of his men. I mean, after all, this angry bunch of misfits, they'd been ready to stone him to death only four days earlier. But David has the guts to say, No! No, no, I'm not giving in on this point. That's not the way things are done. So Saul gave generously, but was motivated by fear of man and he lost the kingship. David gave generously, but was motivated by fear of the Lord, which is, by the way, the beginning of wisdom. So that was the second detail to look at. The third detail, the last thing, is David's gifts of plunder to the elders of Judah. Thirteen towns or regions are identified as receiving a gift from from David. And it's not simply that David knows how to make friends, because David most certainly does know how to make friends, but it's also that David knows to remember, to remember those who have helped him in the past. Hey, you looked after me in my hard times. Here's a gift. He keeps them in mind. He repays kindness with kindness. You see, back, 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 back before, in the past, those leaders had sowed into David's life in the past and now they're going to reap a harvest. And what David is now doing is he's copying them, he's sowing big time into their lives and he will also certainly reap a harvest, loyalty and love when he becomes king. And David uh, shows us that those who would accumulate must also learn to distribute. Uh, Paul writes for us, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, Paul writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Well, somebody once said, I'm not sure it was, but money is like manure. If you heap it up, it stinks. But if you spread it around, things grow. Those who would accumulate need to learn to distribute. So let's gather these thoughts together. What do we learn from this text? Well, yes, David is disciplined by the Lord. He's disciplined. But the Lord's discipline is not like the punishment of an angry old man who inflicts pain simply in order that he might feel better. No, the Lord's discipline is loving and effective, effective in order that we might learn and be more like him. This text shows us the Lord's discipline in David's life was wondrously effective. David, at the end of this story, is caring, generous, gracious, and wise, just as God is caring, generous, gracious, and wise. David has learned and become more like God because God disciplined him. And the discipline of God allowed a curse into David's life. But the work of God turned that curse into a blessing. Now, the Bible is passionate in its desire to teach and reinforce this principle into the hearts of God's people. Curses may come, but God will turn them into blessings sooner or later. And those who trust God in the time of trial who persevere in their faith will reap a wonderful harvest, such a wonderful harvest that the generosity of God will be obvious. You will reap so much more than you even deserve. Yeah, God's people do get crucified. It's an occupational hazard. But in this text, David trusts that there is a resurrection. And out of that trust the story is turned around. No, every, every, every curse turned into a blessing. No weapon formed against us can prosper. Yes, in this text, the enemies of God jumped on the people of God, given the opportunity. And the people of God certainly gave them an opportunity. But when the enemies of God jumped on the people of God, it turned out to be a disaster for them. So this text is extremely encouraging. Yes, the Lord does discipline us, usually in response to our sins or follies. But his discipline will be effective in lovingly making us more like him. God is caring, generous, and kind, and so too will we be. We can sow with generosity in the expectation that we will reap an unfairly huge reward. Because God turns things around. Weaknesses into strengths, curses into blessings, blunders into opportunities. No weapon formed against us can prosper. And that would be a good place to end things. Only I won't. Not quite. Not just yet. Because last week uh, when we read chapter 31, we, we noted that the book of 1 Samuel, it actually doesn't end on a happy note. I've reversed things so that we can end on a happy note rather than on a very, very low note because the last chapter of 1 Samuel, boy, it ends on a low note. It ends on the death of Saul. We saw that last week. And in doing so, somebody decided to divide up all this material at some point, and in, uh, in, uh, in dividing the book there, um, into First Samuel and Second Samuel, he portions into one book the failure of the priesthood with the fall of grace of Eli and sons, uh, the failure of the prophetic tradition with Israel voting to replace the prophet Samuel with a king, and the failure of the kingship itself with Saul killing himself, unable to find a way of living with God and His commands. You could so easily have moved the book break. F- forward a chapter. Then you'd end with David defeating the Amalekites and we all go, hooray, what a great book. And then you'd start the next book with Saul killing himself and that would be a really low point, but you could go up and up, couldn't you? But no, they had to end on a bad note. Why? Why put the book division there? The answer to that is, of course, I don't know. (laughs) But I think it might have something to do with this. The, the reality we constantly see, the reality we constantly see is the defeat of God and his purposes in the world. It always looks like the world is winning. And as Christians, we see these changes after changes and we think, oh, the world is winning. And you know what? The world thinks it's winning too. Here, there, and everywhere, the church of God and the gospel she proclaims is marginalized and mocked over this issue or another, voted out of order, shouted down, intentionally misunderstood, sins proclaimed from the rooftops, achievements denied or minimalized, and very often she is criminalized to boot. And as individual Christians... We we often feel deeply and enviously about our non-Christian friends, neighbours, or family who who prosper beyond us in health, wealth, and happiness. It often seems that the world is winning, but actually that's just the appearance of things. You know what? As far you know what as far as the world is concerned, the story of Jesus ends. In him being crucified and buried late on a Friday afternoon, shortly before sunset, and buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus taught publicly, he did miracles publicly, he was tried and executed in the public gaze. But he rose from the dead privately. He did not again appear in public. He did not re-enter the temple precincts and do more miracles. He rose from the dead privately. He did not appear to anyone at all, except those who already believed in him. And when he did appear, it was privately. In closed rooms, doors locked for fear of the authorities, on a lonely highway, appearance disguised, or on a hillside far away in the countryside with only believers present. He died publicly. The resurrection was private. And we live in a world where it almost always looks like the world is winning where bad guys win and good guys are losers. And those who live as citizens of the world, they go on believing that we're the ones touched in the head. So so when we say God turns things around, weaknesses into strengths, curses into blessings, op- blunders into opportunities, no weapon formed against us can prosper, we need to acknowledge that it often appears that such things aren't true. But we've noticed in this book again and again and again that one of the key lessons is don't use your eyes. Don't judge by appearances. If you're going to use your eyes, keep them focused on Jesus. Only those who keep their eyes focused on God realize that this stuff is true. That God does indeed turn curses into blessings, blunders into opportunities, weaknesses into power. No weapon formed against us can prosper. So let us trust in the Lord Jesus and keep our eyes on him. Those who do so will mount up like eagles. The Lord be with you.